Before we read the passage tonight, in fact, if you have a Bible, you're going to want to open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's one sitting in front of you, no doubt, in the back of a pew. And so you can just use that and use the index up front to find the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. But before we look at the passage, I want to do two things. And one is I want to put this passage in its context of what's going on. You see, the church in Corinth asked Paul a question because there was a disagreement going on in the church about a particular issue. The issue involved food sacrificed to idols. Um, The reason they're asking is because in Corinth, in the first century, there were temples, quite a few of them in Corinth actually, devoted to different Roman and Greek, etc. gods. And those were not merely the places where the worshipers of said gods went to, but also where a good deal of the social and economic Um, activity, even the civil activity, happened. And so if you were going to rent a hall for a wedding, you would rent one of these big spaces at the temple, and then the food would be offered to the god on behalf of the, on behalf of the, um, you know, celebration, and then that feast would be eaten by the wedding. And so the division that happened in the church is simply this. Some people thought, that's not a place that Christians should be. That's not something that Christians should participate in. And remember that many of them had been worshipers at those exact temples. And so for them, there's a division between who they were, a worshiper of Pan, for example, and who they are now, a worshiper of Jesus. And so there's some overlap in there that makes them uncomfortable. There was another group in the church who saw themselves as being so strong and so spiritually mature that there was really no threat or danger or temptation involved in being in those places with those people doing those things. And so they actually, I think, this is a guess, but I think they're the ones writing Paul, and the reason is because they want his uh, apostolic justification so that they can wag it in the face of all the people who are giving them a hard time. And the reason I believe that is because Paul begins the discussion not with a yes or no answer, but saying the whole way that you're asking this question is wrong, and he spends two chapters saying you can't just think about these things in terms of yourself you have to think about them in terms of how it impacts other people around you. And he's not done with that point. He'll come back to it next week. But in chapter 10, he finally comes forward and goes, now to answer your question, he says, effectively, this is a terrible idea. You shouldn't do this, and here's why. And he starts to lay out his points. The reason we've called this series Warning is because when you see a warning sign on the street, it implies every single time two things, okay? One thing that it implies is that the danger that it's warning you of is imminent, We don't have signs that say warning such and such a thousand miles over there, right? We don't tend to feel the need to warn people about the existence of bees, just bees in a particular area, right, that's nearby where the warning sign is. The second thing that's always implied in a warning sign is that the danger is inherently hidden, meaning it needs to be stated. It's not self-evident. We don't see signs that say, warning, this water is wet. And outside of the United States, you don't see cups that say, warning, this coffee is hot, right? Some things should be self-evident. They don't need a warning. But when you do see a warning sign, it's always for things that you wouldn't expect. Falling rocks, for example. And so it's both an imminent danger, something that could actually happen, and inherently, it's a hidden one. Something that unless you were familiar with the uh, terrain or used to the area, you wouldn't know. And so whether you're a newcomer or you're just not familiar with the danger, it's made visible for you, okay? In the same way here, Paul has been bringing forward the hidden dangers of just the Christian life in general, but specifically on this issue. And so we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 22 tonight. I'd like to read it through, then we'll pray, and then we'll take a, a closer look. First Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? 
that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Should we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Father, Paul wouldn't have given the church in Corinth this warning unless the danger was real. And it wouldn't be recorded for us as scripture unless it was real for us too. And so I pray that you would help us to recognize the way Paul is thinking about these things um, and that we wouldn't be so aloof or so arrogant um, to to, to not see how this overlaps with our own lives. Your word is full of promises that you will teach those who desire to be taught. And so we come before you and ask that you would teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. We need to deal with something right up front, and it's both because it's something we really need to deal with in our context, and also because it's a perfect illustration of what I said about warnings. Multiple times here, Paul references demonic activity. And in the modern world, there's a tendency, uh, there's a tendency to believe in such, uh, to believe in materialism to such a degree that we're already in fairy tale territory, right? As soon as you mention the demonic, it's like, okay, here we go. This is not real stuff. Okay. Now, when I say materialism, there's a couple of things that are worth pointing out. First is very rarely does anybody say I'm. I'm a materialist, and what they mean is that I only believe in the things that I can see. For example, uh, we recognize, cutting edge of science, that there's lots of things we don't understand. That doesn't mean there isn't answers there, right? Science is built on the premise that if we keep searching, we may find answers, but a good deal of science is going, we know that A leads to B, we can't follow the path, but we're going to assume there's a path, right? Which is not non-materialism. So my criticism this tonight is not, what, you don't believe in the unseen? Have you ever seen a molecule? Have you ever seen a germ? That's not what we're talking about. Okay? Um, what materialism really means as a philosophy of life is that the physical realm is all there is. Okay? That doesn't mean that you tangibly and personally have to experience and see all of it, but there's nothing to see beyond it. Probably the greatest articulation of this is in the 1970s documentary, The Cosmos, with Carl Sagan, that opens with this sentence, the cosmos, all there is, all there was, all that will ever be, okay? What is Sagan saying in that sentence? He's saying, this is all there is. There's nothing behind it. There's nothing beyond it. There's nothing outside of it. There is the natural cosmos, and there is no supernatural. That's what I mean by materialism, okay? Now, um, If you're not a Christian tonight, I can totally understand why that resonates with you. Um, And the reason I think it resonates with the most of us is because it's not so much a taught concept. We're predating or post-dating the taught concept. It's just assumed in our times. And so telling a ghost story is something that's fun, uh, and ghost hunting is something you may observe on TV, but that doesn't mean you believe in ghosts. And and on and on and so and so. It's just the general state of our culture's belief on these things. And so if you're here tonight and you're hearing about the demonic, it's very easy to write it off, but I just want you to recognize one simple thing, okay? Which is, if the world is merely natural, then all the problems we have as human beings are merely natural, and the only resources you have to meet the problems of human life are merely natural, okay? Now, the Christian concept, the Christian doctrine takes a completely different point of view, and it says our problem is inherently supernatural. But I just want you to recognize tonight that when we look at the big problems of humanity from A to Z, that if you're a materialist, all you're left with to meet those problems is natural things. Okay? Now, history, I think, is a pretty good gauge that if that's all there is, we're in trouble. Okay? Because we've dug to the depths of our resources to meet certain problems in our times. We recognize serious issues that we see as being human issues, prevalent in all times and in all cultures, injustice and racism. And if all you have to meet those problems is people, is 
nature, then you have a problem without a solution. Okay? You're limited just to what's natural and what's available. You just need to be aware of that tonight. Now, second, I want to address specifically Christians tonight because we're prone to a nuanced materialism. I mean, just simply put, Christianity is inherently a supernatural religion. It believes that beyond the cosmos, apart from the cosmos, predating the cosmos and creating the cosmos is a god, right? The god. Not only that, but we believe that in Jesus Christ, God became a man. That's a perfect illustration of something more than material. God in the flesh, invisible, but tremendously present and real. Beyond that, we believe in things like miracles, that Jesus did miracles, that the, the story of the Bible reports as history, miraculous happenings where God interfered in the natural, okay, supernaturally. And we even believe that the Christian life can only be lived supernaturally. And so what Jesus does is not show us the way naturally to be good, but supernaturally gives us the Holy Spirit. And it's through our relationship with Jesus by the Spirit that we can live the Christian life. And so the Christian life is inherently supernatural. However, there's a tendency for Christians to nod their heads on all of those things and still balk at certain issues of supernatural. And so we'll say, yes, that's all fine. I believe in God. I believe that God became a man in Jesus Christ. I believe that he sent the Holy Spirit and that's my source of life, but I don't believe in demons. I don't believe in angels. I don't believe in miracles. And frankly, our non-Christian friends that are present tonight have a much more rational logic than you do, okay? And I just want you to recognize that tonight, and I also want you to recognize that it's not your problem as modern, civilized Christians who know better than your, um, that, than your uh, susceptible, gullible, historical, ancient past, okay? The Corinthians struggle with the same disconnect. In fact, if I can speak to you non-Christians one more time tonight, there is this idea that thinks that superstition just, just is something that the world outgrew. Okay? And so the more ancient you are, the more uncivilized a culture is, the more it's full of superstition. So of course they believed in miracles because they didn't understand science. And I would just challenge that. I would say if you even read the Bible's account, you will see people balking at miracles right in front of their face. Thomas himself, who became one of the 12 apostles, hears that Jesus has risen from the dead and he goes, no way, man. I'm not going to believe that unless I can physically put my fingers in the holes in his hands caused by the nails. He was stabbed in the side. I saw it myself. Until I can put my hand there, I'm not believing that he's alive. And Jesus shows up and says, touch, feel, don't disbelieve, but believe. Watch out for the cultural snobbery that says we have outgrown superstition. Watch out for the cultural snobbery that says that the ancient world didn't have uh, materialists or skeptics or scientists. Uh, that they, they just walked around going, well, maybe that's a rock, but maybe it's a god. That's just not realistic. here's the thing. Just take the concept of the demonic alone. The principle behind this is there really is a spiritual evil. Meaning if you do the math on the history of the world, you're going to come up with a big missing variable. Okay? Do you guys know what dark matter is? Dark matter is something that scientists assume exists because when we weigh the universe, there's a good deal more weight than there is substance. And so dark matter is the thing that we can't see, that we can't observe, that carries most of the weight of the known universe. What I'm telling you tonight is if you just look at human behavior at a broad scale and you try and go, is this decidedly merely natural and human? It's a challenging place to come to. Even if you look at your own life, you are going to recognize places where you only have two choices. Either you are subhuman or there's something more going on. Now, if you're a Christian, you've observed this because there are seasons in your life where you struggle with things that are just not normal struggles. There are times where you encounter thoughts that you would have never thought on your own, and it's like they've been planted in your head. 
The Bible says that the devil and his demons came to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's a major aspect of Christianity. It's not easily uprooted. Okay? The, the Satan and the demonic as presented in scripture is not merely a mythology to explain the ancient world, these things we didn't understand. It is a major component of what's wrong with the world. And here's the real thing. For Christians and non-Christians alike, the reason we come to these materialistic conclusions, the reasons why we have this prejudice against the spiritual realm, has absolutely nothing to do with what we've thought about. It has to do with where we aren't thinking. Okay? And that's what's going on with the church in Corinth. And so he starts by saying, you say that attending the temple for a feast is no big deal. Because an idol isn't really a god, and because it's just food, right? And so it can't harm you, it can't contaminate you. And he says, you yourselves as Christians don't actually believe that. In fact, notice this. I think there's a tendency to assume that inherently religion makes arbitrary rules and arbitrary explanations of the world that you rely upon on faith, and then you just have to listen to authority. But notice how Paul starts here. What does he say? He says in verse 15, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. He says, I don't have to demonstrate this to you except to show that you're being inconsistent. I don't have to prove this to you by my authority. He doesn't say, thus says Paul, the apostle of Jesus. He doesn't say, I've had a revelation. You can't go to the party. That's not what he says. He says, consider yourself as how you view things. And then he takes what they all agree upon, what's all familiar, and shows us that there's no reason not to apply that to the question. Okay? And so what does he do? He points to communion. He points to this practice that Jesus gave us as Christians to, in remembrance of him, partake of the bread and partake of the cup. And he points to that. Notice what he says here in verse 16. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? And so what he says here is, let's talk about communion. And he says, is it merely food? And to be clear here, he's not seeing something magical or even mystical in the elements themselves. When Jesus gave us the sacraments, the two things that he calls us to do as Christians, which would be communion and baptism, he picks two things that are such staples that you can find them anywhere in the world at any time, okay? We've got the bread and the cup, and then we've got baptism. All you need is water, right? Where there's human life, there's water. They're very simple, and there's nothing magical or mystical about them, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a spiritual reality behind it, and that's what he's trying to point to. He uses the word here for participation. The word in the Greek is koinonia, and it means to have fellowship, to be a partaker, to have a joint uh, connection with. And what he's trying to point out is the reason we partake of communion is symbolic. And it's not merely a symbol in the fact that it's just a ritual that we do, or that it's liturgical and, and mysterious. No, it's symbolic. This is how Jesus talks about what it means to be a Christian in John chapter 6. He says, unless you drink of my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part with me. And so for Christians, the, uh, the essence of our life, what nourishes us, the thing that gives us life and sustains that life is inherently tied to someone else. Christianity doesn't say just look inside yourself and you'll find what you need to get by. It, says, it doesn't say just climb the right mountain and you'll find the source of life, the fountain of eternal youth or these types of things. It says that life is a person and the only way that you experience that life is to become a partaker in what he has done. Okay. And the reason it uses such drastic imagery of drink my blood and eat my flesh is because it came at tremendous cost. Right? Jesus didn't just lay a table, he became the feast. Jesus didn't just make a sacrifice on our half, he was the sacrifice. He died in our place. But the essential element is the same. It's that the reason we do this is because it personifies, it pictures, 
a spiritual reality. So it's a visible and material and tangible symbol of an invisible and spiritual and intangible reality. Baptism is the same way. Okay? Jesus calls Christians when they believe in him to be baptized. And baptism is also a symbol of something real. This is communicated even by the word baptism itself. That's not originally an English word. It was transliterated directly from the Greek. Okay? The Greek word is baptizo. And so instead of coming up with a new word, we just stole it and put an English-ism on the end of it. Okay? But that's not the only Greek word for dip something in water. There is another one, bapto. That's just the simple one. And the difference between the two is super important if we're going to understand what baptism is. And so forgive me for geeking out for a second, but we actually have a recipe for pickles from, from Koine Greek, from the same Greek of our New Testament, made by a guy named Nicander. And the reason why this recipe for pickles is helpful is because he uses both words, both bapto and baptizo. And this is what he says. He says, when you have your cucumbers, the first thing that you need to do is bapto them. You need to wash them, right? You clean them. He says, then, as he gets it all prepared, he says, then you baptizo it in vinegar, okay? What's the difference between these two words? Bapto, with the cucumber, all you have is a wet cucumber. Baptizo, you have a pickle, okay? Baptizo carries the concept of change. Simply put, God is not interested in wet Christians. That's not the point of baptism, okay? It is a symbol of a transformation, a really big one, a really important one, and a really real one. The idea of baptism is inherently one of identification. It recognizes not just, yes, I believe that Jesus died and buried and was raised again, but in a true sense, I died with Jesus. I was buried with Jesus, and I was raised into newness of life, okay? And so we do baptism as an outward display of an inward reality. But I want to be clear here, because this is really a helpful time to talk about this. A lot of times, if you're a Christian, a lot of times in the church, we think of baptism as being primarily testimony. And even if you're baptized as a part of our church, we generally, when it's warm enough, do it at Madison Park Beach. It's inherently a public place. And we've done it in, uh, in the past and actually had people cheer and clap, just people, you know, sunbathing on the beach. Um, but, but although everything the church does is inherently public, baptism is not about showing the world that you're a believer in Jesus. And this is actually pretty easy to demonstrate because if you look at the early Christians that make up the stories of the book of Acts, some of them don't fit that paradigm. Take the Philippian jailer. Okay, here's a guy who uh, is overseeing Paul and Barnabas, early Christians who have been imprisoned for preaching Jesus, who have been whipped and beaten for preaching Jesus, and are sitting in the dark in a prison cell, shackled, and they're singing praise songs to God. And in the midst of their singing, the building begins to shake, all the shackles come off the wall, and, and all the torches go out. And so the Philippian jailer knows the consequence of a lost prisoner. It's death, okay? If you've got a prisoner who's deserving of capital punishment and he gets away, it's now your punishment, okay? And so he actually is about to take his own life. He just goes, oh, it's over. There's no way I'll survive this. And Paul and Barnabas stop and he says, no, we're all right here. All the prisoners are still here. And he is so confused by this act, he says, you gotta tell me about this Jesus guy. And he becomes a Christian that night. And he is baptized in the middle of the night, okay? In his house, the equivalent of his bathtub, okay? Uh, another uh, example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when a guy named Philip is talking to a eunuch from Ethiopia who just happens to be driving along in his carriage reading the book of Isaiah, his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah. And so Philip explains the gospel to him. And the eunuch goes, there's water. Why, not, why can't I get baptized? And Philippians, or Philip says, that's a great idea. And so he's baptized right there in the wilderness with no, with no one watching. Okay. Here's the point. Baptism is not about other people. It's about you. 
He gives you a place to remember, a place to remind yourself, a place to point on the calendar and say, on that day, on that day, everything changed. I am no longer who I was. I am now, as Paul says, who I am in Christ. Okay? It's transformation, and we go through the physical act of it because you need a tangible reminder. Communion is the same way. Communion is a physical, consumable, you taste it, you go through the motions of it, you experience it, not just as an experience, not as something that's mystical and and magical, but because we need to be reminded of what it represents. Jesus says this on on the night that he institutes it. He takes the ancient Jewish festival of Passover, and he basically says to his disciples, I know all of this is from thousands of years ago, but it's talking about me. And yes, there was a Passover lamb then, but I'm the Passover lamb. And so he hijacks the traditional Passover dinner and makes it about himself. He takes the bread from the Passover table and he says, this is my body that was broken for you. As often as you eat it, do it in what? Remembrance of me. And then he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my shed blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Okay? The reality of communion and the reason we partake it regularly is because we need to remember the truths that it presents. We need a tangible reminder of the fact that for us as Christians, Jesus is our life. And this is not just because he died so that we might live Jesus says this in John chapter 15. This is, this is the intimacy. This is the closeness of this relationship. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He says, abide in me or you can do nothing. So here's what he says. He says that a fruitful life, if you will, he says that a life that pleases God happens because you're directly connected to the branch, okay, or to the vine. You're merely a branch coming off of the vine of Jesus' life and it's his sap. And it's his life-giving that flows in and makes your life fruitful. Okay. When he says, abide in me, it means to live as if that were true. To keep yourself close to Jesus. We take communion as a reminder of that reality. To realign ourselves with that reality. Okay. The word here for koinonia, fellowship, to become a partaker means that you now experience the benefits of what Jesus has done. He uses the symbol of food because for us as Christians, Jesus' act was nourishing. What Jesus has done for us gives us nourishment. It sustains us. It gives us life. And so what Paul does here for the church in Corinth, he says, do you take communion because it's merely food? I mean, let's just be honest. Communion, as we partake of it, is not really that appetizing. There's a reason why the church has never jazzed it up or called in a chef like Gordon Ramsay to revise the recipe. You know, it's not something that we look forward to because we're merely hungry, like, you know, the service is a little too long and the only way we can make it through is to have a snack. Right? It, he picks, as I said earlier, bread and the cup because it's simple and it's available and it's, it's inherently necessary but we partake of it and we do it often we do it regularly because just like your physical self needs food you need Jesus every day and so he brings this up to the church in Corinth and he says you already already recognize that this is not merely a meal in fact he's saying something even more significant he's saying Meals are inherently more than food. Notice what he says next. This, this clarifies for us. So he says, the cup that we bless, is it not participation in the blood? He says, the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body? And then notice what he says in verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So first he says that we have a, participata- or, sorry, a participation in what Jesus has done. We have communion 
with God himself. We are in fellowship with the God of the universe. It's speaking of intimacy, right? But when he moves on here, he shows that there's not just a vertical fellowship going on, but a horizontal one. And he uses the illustration of a loaf of bread itself. And it doesn't matter if you slice that bread up or if you tear it apart or if we all pick up a loaf and take a bite of it. The principle is the same. It's that one loaf becomes part of all of us. And so we now share that bread in common. When we say we share a meal, that doesn't just mean like in the Rafi sense that we've been a good neighbor, right? It's something that we've participated in together. And so what he points out is eating with other people is significant. It is inherently significant. It says things like, I want to get to know you, or I want to be with you, or we are the same. And this is something that normal food does. Communion is, is a step beyond this. And so here's what it means for us as a church when we take, partake of the same communion. This is why I always think it's weird when Christians develop a habit of individual private communion taking. I just think it's weird. I don't think it's wrong. I just think it's weird. And the reason is because it is inherently a reminder of the fact that we are one because we share Jesus in common. The fact is what Jesus has done is so life transforming that anyone who has experienced it now has a closer relationship with someone else who has than the natural ties of life. It's hard to get much closer than family, wouldn't you agree? Like you don't just share a meal with your family, you share genes, you share history, you share tradition, you share traits, good and bad. And you didn't really pick that, that's just the way it works. But constantly Jesus takes family and uses it as both a contrastive picture where he says, my relationship with you is more important, and a symbolic picture where he says the church is a family. The church is to be this type of close. When it talks about our relationship that we have with God, the one of the words that Paul uses is adoption. Okay? And so you don't just gain a father in God when you become a Christian, you gain a family in other Christians. And so he says, when we partake of this bread together, we identify, because we all identify with the nourishment of Jesus, we also identify with the co-nourishment of one another. We recognize that we're now in fellowship with one another. So much of the New Testament's teachings of what was accomplished in Jesus are inherently social. It says there can be no racism within the church because the barriers between one race and another were broken down in Jesus, that all those things were resolved and there's now peace available for us. In fact, even sin against another Christian needs to be dealt with primarily because of, of the profound impact of what Jesus has done in our life. For, for most relationships, if somebody does something offending, something sinful, if somebody breaks the fellowship of that relationship, the only way to move forward is to deal with that, okay? And so what happens sometimes in our relationships is we go, it's not worth it, that's the end of the relationship. And what happens generally in other times is we say, well, we'll just downplay the sin. We'll say it's no big deal, it's fine, it, it's not really that big of a deal. Um, and the problem with that is it's a big deal. When someone sins against you, it's not just an accidental happening, it's not just a mistake, it's something that harms. It's something that hurts. But us as Christians, we recognize both that that sin that came into our relationship was so serious that Jesus died for it and that because he died for it, it can be completely and fully forgiven and the relationship can continue. So simply put, there's no reason for barriers to be sustained within the church. And that is so simple, it's almost an oversimplification. There's a lot of what-ifs that could pop up in that, but the reason why I'm telling you that tonight is because when we partake of communion, you are not doing it justice if you're leaving undealt with things on the table in the same room, in the same church, in the same family. We have fellowship. We have something tremendously intimate in Jesus Christ, and we share it in common. That's what the word koinonia means. We're co-participants in what Jesus has done. And so it has, yes, a vertical aspect of saying we find our meaning, our significance, our strength, 
our source of life itself in Jesus Christ. And so we partake of communion. And in the same way, we recognize the closeness of our relationship with other partakers of the same thing because we've all experienced the same salvation in Jesus Christ. And so he says, isn't that what you think communion is? He says, isn't that why we partake of communion as a church? And then he gives another illustration, just one step removed. Notice what he says here in verse 18. He says, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? So most likely here, he's looking back to the Old Testament practice of the sacrifices. There were sacrifices commanded for Israel to participate in. And he's probably here thinking of a particular one, and that's the fellowship offering. It already sounds like we're on the right track because we're in the same word group, right? And here's how the fellowship offering would, bring, uh, would work. A person would come wanting only and completely just to celebrate the fact that they were in a relationship with God, that they and God had a covenant, that there was love and loyalty there. It was kind of like a way of inviting God to your house, inviting God into your life, inviting God to the party, if you will. Okay? And so what they would do is they would take this animal and they would kill it and they would offer some of it up on the altar in the name of God and then the rest would be eaten by the priest, by the worshiper, and by those he invited to the feast. Okay? And so what he says here is, aren't all the people who were invited to the feast participants in that sacrifice? Isn't the reason why this sacrifice is designed to be a party, to represent a real spiritual, tangible truth of the fellowship you have in your relationship with God? Aren't you all eating of the same meat, but it's not just about sharing a meal, it's also about sharing a covenant? It may be that he's talking about something different here and doing it in an ironic sense. The reason why I bring this up is because if you look at the first half of uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul doesn't talk about Israel in a very positive light in terms of their sacrifices and worship. He's just delineated a whole list of places where they were idolatrously worshiping other gods. And so he may be here saying, when they worshiped the gods of foreigners, was it just a meal? When they sat down at the temple and ate of those sacrifices, was it merely just food? Or did it not have these same components in it? What he's recognizing is a tremendous ability we have to critique the same sin in other people that we justify in ourselves. And so he's saying, you say, oh, it's not a big deal to eat at this. And you read the Old Testament and you go, stupid Israelites, what are you thinking? Right? That may be what's going on. I'm more drawn to the first interpretation. But it may be that he's actually drawing a negative example. The point is the same. The point is in both cases, it's more significant than merely food for the stomach. It's more significant than just a material world. It is representative of something behind the scenes. It's inherently a spiritual act, okay? And so what he does is he lays this out in a way that they would all agree with. And he says, now apply that to the question that you asked me. But before he does, he makes a clarification and it's a super important one. In fact, I've already been building what I've said to you tonight on this foundation, even though we haven't gotten there. Notice what he says in verse 19. What do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? And so he clarifies up front by saying, am I saying that when food is offered to idols, it somehow molecularly changes and becomes toxic for Christians? He says, am I saying that there's some sort of um, magical element to these idolatrous feasts and, uh, and a, there's a cross-contamination issue that if you touch this meat, you'll be tainted? Absolutely not, he says. In fact, he'll say next week, uh, if, you go to the, if you go to the marketplace and you buy meat, don't, gay, don't go, hey, do you, know, do you know if this cut of this rack of ribs here, do you know if this was sacrificed to an idol? He says, don't, just eat. But it changes when it's intentional. It changes when it's visible. It changes when that's the intended purpose of the meal you're about to have. That's where the threshold is for Paul. But he says it's not about the food. And then he says, and it's not because idols are anything. You can imagine the Corinthians who disagree with Paul here with their arms crossed, hearing this whole thing and going, come on, Paul, even we know. It's Christianity 101. There's only one God. 
Idols aren't really anything. They aren't really gods. There's no threat to my life. I'm not going to experience the wrath of Zeus because I partake of his sacrifice. He's not real. And Paul says, I'm not talking about that. The issue here is not that there are other valid religions and other valid gods that you need to be afraid of. And then he says something that is, uh, is shocking to us today. I don't think was any less shocking to them. This is what he says. He says, no, verse 20, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And he says, just because there isn't an element of the divine, divine doesn't mean there isn't an element of the de- demonic. Remember here that Christianity views itself, like most religions, as truth. Truth as opposed to falsehood. Truth in terms of reality as opposed to imaginary. And like I said earlier, the Bible sees the devil and demons as intentionally against humanity. And so what Paul is pointing out here is is that religions aren't started like science fiction series. It's not somebody who goes, I'd really like to write a story about Zeus, okay? Or I'd really, that's not how these things start. What he's saying is, if, if religions really come down to one being the one true path, and there's a lot of false paths, that's not a good thing. And so what he says here is that there is a demonic element in idolatry, that there is a deceptive element in idolatry. And I, I think we can be so quick as moderns to call foul because that's so critical of other religions. But like I said, just reduce it down to the logic that if only one is true and that's, that is listening to religion to accept that fact, to deny that and say all religions are equally true is to offend all religious people, okay? Uh, in fact, it's, it's to create your own religion because you're making a dogmatic and creedal statement that all religions are equally false, or at least false in the places where they say that they're exclusive. But if, if people are being led astray by wrong ways of viewing the universe, if the only way, as the Bible says, for life to go right for a human being is to be rightly aligned with the God who made you, then every other way is not just deceptive, but damaging, destructive even. And so Paul says, simply put, that that the element involved in that is not merely material. That there really is a spiritual reality that other religions and other philosophies and, and the whole world system itself. And he says that it's demonic. Remember his logic. He says, when you sit down at a feast in your church for communion, there is a spiritual reality behind that. He says, you can't walk into a feast of another religion and say it doesn't mean anything. It's only a free meal. And scarier than that, he says that it's demonic. Now, he continues here and he says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. And there's two ways I want you to think about this tonight. One is the fact that if there really is a, uh, a bad intended spiritual force behind these things, then that's not something that you should say is, is not, not a big deal. Okay? And then second is the inconsistency of sitting at that table. Okay? Because the reality is the rest of the worshipers who are there see that meal as significant. And so what do they think of you in partaking of that meal? That you are co-partaking of that meal. It's not an assumption we can make with 100%, but if I see someone partaking of communion, I naturally assume that they are a participant in Jesus, okay? And so can you imagine in Paul's day, these Christians going, oh, it's not a big deal, it doesn't mean anything, and sitting next to the table with their neighbors who go, oh, I could have thought, I could have sworn that guy was a Christian. Or, oh, maybe the difference between Christianity and other religions isn't that different because he needs this God in the same way that I do. Let me illustrate both of these concepts, both the destructiveness and the confusion of these things. In the time of, the, uh, of Israel living in the land of Israel in the Old Testament, one of the gods that the Canaanites, the surrounding people, worshipped was a god named Molech. Okay? 
Now, Molech was worshipped in a very particular way. They would take this small metal idol that had hands reaching out, and they would put it in the fire until it was red hot, and then they would take their infant children and lay them on the altar and let them burn to death. Okay? Here's the problem. Outside of the obvious, okay, here's the problem. It's that the only way to worship Molech was inherently, sooner or later, ethical, as, a, as all worship is. As all religion is, it makes demands of your life. But those demands are always based on what's most important, what's okay and what's not okay. And so to come alongside shoulder to shoulder with other people, there are going to be lines that you as Christians cannot confirm or affirm, cannot participate in, and cannot identify with. And I don't think there were, are many people today who would comfortably say whatever it is that Molech offers, which was wealth, by the way, is worth the price of a human child. But in those days, to sit down and worship Molech is to identify with those practices, as well as to identify with the fact that what I need most in life is wealth. And so if I just appease Molech, I'll have what's most important in life. And so when they sat at the table with these other people, what they were communicating was, I find my significance, I find my meaning in the same things you do. Christianity says all idolatry, all worship that's not focused on the God who is there, the God of the universe, is inherently wrong-headed and destructive. And so you're aligning yourself with something that's not merely dangerous for you, but confusing for other people. Simply put here, Paul is going to say, you shouldn't eat at that table because you want something better for them. And so when you settle for the food laid at that table and say, this is enough for me, there's no reason for them to believe that there's a better meal out there. Okay. He also says there's an inconsistency in this. He says, uh, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He says, this cannot be a both-and scenario. Either Jesus is all you need and your full satisfaction and your very bread of life, or it's Jesus and, which is not the, not the same thing at all. He says, you can't do both. You can't say, this is the full meaning of my life, and this is just something I do on the side. This one is significant. This one's merely a hobby. This one is spiritual. This one is only social. The truth is, the truth is, Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon. It can't be both and. You can't identify in this way. Now, how do we apply this today? What does it look like in our life? I, I want to point out a very simple, practical illustration, and then I want to deal with, with some other stuff. But first, just recognize this, that there were most likely going to be occasions in your life where you sit down to a meal and something, like, something happens like a toast is given. And that toast is inherently built on the back of evil. Okay? It's a celebration of oppression. It's a manifestation of injustice. It's an affirmation that the most important thing in life is this. And this is what we're worshiping in this meal. And what Paul is saying here, simply put, is you, you cannot eat that meal. Because that is not the most important thing in life. And not only are you getting off track in what's meaningful to you, but you're also making no distinction to what's actually meaningful, meaningful for the people at the table. Paul is not saying here, stop eating with non-Christians or stop going to places where non-Christians are. But he does say, as you live in those places, live distinctively. Jesus uses two metaphors to describe the church. One is salt, one is light. Both of them are only effective when they're around things they aren't. Okay? Salt is to deal with corruption. But if salt is not salty, Jesus says, what's it for? Light is only helpful where things are dark. But if light becomes darkness, then it's no longer light. And so the idea here is not that you remove yourself from your life in the world or remove yourself from these things, but you do live differently, distinctively. But there is another area that we need to address. We call this tonight the danger of compromise, and that's totally accurate, but it might be more appropriate for us as moderns to call this the danger of demons. 
okay? Because that's the hidden warning that we're most likely to not believe. The church in Corinth believed in the demonic world, okay? Remember that Jesus' ministry had manifest signs of demonic oppression that he dealt with directly, and so did his apostles. But here's the thing we have to recognize. There are many places in our life where we make the same argument as the Corinthian church, and we say it's merely blank, and we make it entirely material, we make it entirely physical, and we try and deny the spiritual reality behind it. And I ask you to hear me out entirely and not just hear the first words I say and tune me out. But the examples I want to illustrate tonight are with things like yoga, transcendental meditation, uh, and in Eastern medicine. Okay? Now, like I said, hear me out. Okay? There was a blog I read uh, a few years ago from a graduate of Bastyr University. And Bastyr University is a alternative medicine school in the Seattle area. Um, they have degrees in nutrition, in homeopathic medicine, in midwifery, uh, as well as acupuncture and, me and Eastern medicine. They do all sorts of things, okay? Now, this guy who went through this program was a Christian, and he was trying to come up with a way to navigate what was usable as a Christian in practice and what needed to be avoided. And his metaphor has always been helpful to me. He said, you have to be able to discern the difference between a priest and a practitioner. That was his line. And he said the same thing to Christians who were going to visit an acupuncturist or join a yoga, cl yoga class. There is plenty of examples in the world of yoga that is merely stretching. But that doesn't mean that yoga inherently by nature is merely stretching. Okay? And to walk in a place where it's clearly more than that and excuse it because all it means to you is stretching is directly what Paul is talking about here. Same with meditation. Meditation is not merely thinking, okay? It can be, and you'll find all sorts of schools that just recognize that breathing exercises are good for your normal health. That's practitioner. But transcendental meditation is focused on emptying yourself to open yourself up to become part of the universe. And inherently, a distinct difference in what Christianity believes and what Eastern religion believes is that we do not see all of the universe as good or normal. You know, most Eastern religions explain away evil as just being perception. And Christians say, no, there are things in the universe that you don't want to be connected with, that you don't want to bring yourself under the influence of. And so does that mean that you shouldn't do breathing exercises or should stop meditating? Actually, meditation is a biblical principle. But even there, it's tremendously different. The goal of Eastern meditation is to empty yourself of all thought. The goal of biblical meditation is to take the Bible and digest it fully into who you are. Okay? It's like steeping a bag of tea. You take the scripture and you hold it with your mind. You think about it from all angles. You draw out all of the value until you're no longer just a cup of water, but you've become tea. Okay? That's the biblical idea of meditation. Same thing with acupuncture. And frankly, I've, I've utilized acupuncture, and it was both surprisingly weird um, because the advantage of Eastern medicine is directly related to its disadvantage. It's that it doesn't make sense to Western science, okay? It's a very different way of thinking about things. And so in one sense, it's really helpful at meeting solutions that Western medicine isn't at. But there's also this other aspect of it, the priestly aspect of it, which is inherently spiritual. And you can't just easily walk into that and say, it's not spiritual for me. That's not the way it works. But what I want you to recognize tonight is, and I'm not telling you what to do and what not to do, I'm just, I'm just saying if it resonates with you that communion means more, then don't settle for these simple answers that say it's merely stretching, it's merely thinking, it's merely you know, physical pressure points. Is it? Have you really thought about it? Paul points out to the church in Corinth, they're saying these things, but it's not because they've thought this through and come to, you know, um, ascendant conclusions. It's that they haven't thought about it at all. They've just assumed, and they've assumed against what they know to be true. And one of the reasons we do this, by the way, uh, is simply put, because we like to do what we like to do. And so it's very easy for them to say, oh, it's just food, because they want to be there. The Bible says that Christians should not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think those words are intentional in what they mean, because being conformed just happens, right? There's a mold, 
and you're the clay and it just presses you into that shape. That's what happens. That's how life is. So many of the opinions you hold, the things that you think are good and not good, the places you go and don't go, the practices you do and not do, are just because that's what you know. And a fish goes with the flow if it's not swimming against it. Okay? Conformity is what happens when you don't think, when you're not proactive about filtering things through the scripture, when you're not actually considering. Okay? And so it's not more enlightened to engage in all of these things because they're just. Most of the time, it's unthoughtful. And that's Paul's criticism of the church here. Now notice how he finishes in verse 22. He says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? There's two things we've got to get before we can pull this together. The first is, the word jealousy in English only has a negative connotation. Right? Nobody would say, you know, one of my best traits is that I'm a really jealous person. Okay? In both Hebrew understanding and Greek understanding, the two cultures of thought that make up the scriptures, there is negative jealousy, but there's also positive. Okay? And the difference is between a husband who has no reason to believe his wife is unfaithful, who because of his own insecurities is constantly, you know, not manifesting any trust, policing her, that, that's jealousy, right? But when there's been an affair and the husband feels offended, that is right and appropriate jealousy, okay? The Bible is full of a positive version of jealousy that just says there really is ways to go against relationship. And it constantly says that God is jealous, and it's for the simple reason that he is the only God of the universe worth worshiping. And so to worship other things, to find your identity in other things, to participate in other things as if they give meaning is inherently against who he really is. And I'll add something to you. His jealousy is constantly in your best interest. Okay? Because those other things don't just disappoint, they destroy. And we're not built to worship anything else, and so it goes destructive. And so he says here, should we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And what he's recognizing here is every time Israel settled for Molech, every time Israel sacrificed the best things of life to a God that wasn't there, every time they were deceived by the enemy, he was ticked off. He was frustrated. And if you read the history of Israel, you'll see that there's only one faithful party in the covenant. And it's God. But he's offended, not merely because he's God, but because, because it affects them and he cares about them. The second thing he says is, are we stronger than he? And that's probably a jab. And here's why I say this. The party in the church that said it's fine to do these things felt that they were stronger than other Christians. And he goes, all you're concerned about is if you're stronger than other people, are you stronger than God? He's like, you're flexing your muscles and saying, I'm big enough to do this on my own. And he's like, have you even considered how God might view this? Do you really want to take a stand against them? Here they are wanting to win a battle about what they're allowed to do, and they're not even thoughtfully consulting God on it. It's just, just other people. But, but here's the point. Meals, practices, a good deal of human life is built on things that are deeper than the act itself. Weddings are not just about cake and dresses. Meals are not just about the fact that if you don't eat, you know, it, it, it's the reason why we feel, at least I do, I hate eating alone. And I, I don't like to do it. And I will literally choose not to eat than sit in a restaurant by myself or cook myself a meal. Okay? It, we know that meals are social. But they're not just merely social. It's not just to give you something to eat while you converse. There's a participation element. It's relational inherently. That's why most of us don't like this idea of the communal table at a restaurant where you just sit next to a stranger. If you're not the type of person who's going to engage on that level, then it's just a meal in close quarters with a stranger, right? And for us as Christians, we cannot greatly value the spiritual principle in our own practices and ignore the spiritual principles in other practices and say, it's just, it's just this. It's merely this. It's only this. It's no big deal. And my challenge to you tonight 
is the challenge that Paul gives. His criticism here is not, not that the church has forsaken the authority that he's laid out. Not that they haven't arbitrarily followed the rules, but they haven't even thought about it. This is reason for yourself. Think for yourself. Have you taken the time to sit down and consider the things that you do and go, how does the fact that I'm united with Christ inform this? How does it impact this right here? And just recognize tonight that if you haven't thought about that, that doesn't mean that you haven't come to conclusions. But those conclusions are just things that have been pressed upon you. Conclusions are just things that you naturally move towards. And the whole principle of the Christian life is that you are not a good decision maker. Okay? That you make wrong choices. That you need wisdom and direction. That you need a God. And so we should be thoughtful in the way that we live our lives because what Jesus did on the cross touches every element of life. It informs every decision we make. It's so central and so formative and so transformative that there's not an area of life that is irrelevant to that concept. I'd like to put this warning in context as we close. There was a doctor named Hesselweiss, like Edelweiss, but Hesselweiss. Hesselweiss was a doctor working in a clinic and he started to get bothered by the mortality rate specifically of women giving birth in his hospital. And in Hesselweiss's day, the usual practice for doctors was to spend their mornings in the morgue doing autopsies to learn about bodies, and then they'd go right into their rounds with the patients. This was before we had really developed germ theory, and he didn't have the tools to see the germs. We hadn't labeled botulism or any of these things yet, but he started to go, I think there's a correlation here. And so he changed his personal practice and made not only his personal practice, but his whole hospital wash their hands. And he instantly saw the rate of survival peak spike way up in his hospital and he started to try and communicate this to the medical world of Europe and they mocked him and they laughed at him and they, they I mean he had the facts he presented it he said look just look at my numbers he was quoted at one meeting of just being so exasperated he said he said for the love of God just wash your hands and they didn't listen we didn't develop germ theory till after he died and he went mad by the time he was elderly, he, he was put in an institution because nobody would listen to him. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean you can't see its consequences. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And I would encourage you tonight, Christian and non, to look at history and do the math and see if you can make sense of it without a spiritual reality. Look at your own life and see if you can make sense of it without recognizing that you might be the casualty of deception, of a, of a person whose only desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. Look at the facts of life you know of Christians and non and do the math and just say, statistically, what does it look like? This is not about being irrational and believing in the supernatural. It's about paying attention and thinking thoroughly. Let's pray. Father, abstaining from certain practices is not merely just about not doing bad things. A lot of times it's recognizing that we don't need those things, that we don't have to turn in Jeremiah's word to the broken vessels that can hold no water because we have the fountain of living water. Even fasting is built on the principle that we have something more nourishing and more meaningful than even food itself. I pray that you would show us where our lives are inconsistent with this principle, where we've been thoughtless 
or quick to justify particular behaviors or practices or participation in things, not really recognizing the spiritual element in these things, not really being honest about what these things really mean, not even being aware that there might be something evil and spiritual involved. And I thank you, Lord, that even though you constantly proclaimed that there was an enemy who walks around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us, you also proclaimed that in what you did, we can have victory there. Um, that death will eventually be put away and the devil with it. But I pray that we wouldn't be ignorant of his devices and that we wouldn't just assume that all we see is all there is and that we would recognize the places in our life where there's things going on beneath the surface and that our weapons are not of flesh and blood but of spiritual warfare capable of tearing down strongholds and standing against powers and principalities. I pray this in your name. Amen. As we worship tonight, we'll continue to sing together, which I'd encourage you to do. We also have the table laid for communion, and so if you're a Christian tonight, I invite you to come forward during the worship set and come and partake. But don't do it just as a thing that you do. Don't do it as merely a physical action or as going through the motions. Utilize it to remember. Utilize it to recognize that you need the nourishment that is only available in Christ and that in Christ you have it. So feed on it. Let's take some time and respond tonight. If you'd like prayer, uh, Kirsten is available up front.